All right, welcome back to the Lost Letterman podcast. This is podcast number 20, I believe. Big two zero. (laughs) Uh, I am Jim Weber, the founder of the site. I'm joined by Jordan Rabinowitz, the managing editor. Uh, It was a crazy week of college football. Uh, The big games that we were all looking forward to, Clemson, Florida State, TCU, Oklahoma State, and LSU, Alabama, were all duds. But there was still plenty of excitement that we'll get to in a minute. But first, I want to start with... Missouri. Uh, the breaking story is that Tim Wolf, the president of Missouri, has resigned after a bunch of student protests, including a hunger strike, and the football team, black members of the football team, saying they wouldn't participate in any activities until he resigned. Um, I think there's a lot of confusion about the situation in Missouri from people uh, nationally um, about why he's resigning, resigning after three racist incidents. Uh, but the more you read from people close to the university, there was a lot of frustration among not only uh, black students and athletes, but also just the student body at large about how little was done uh, by the presidency in order to crack down on these incidents and and catch who is responsible and make sure they don't happen again. And Missouri of all places, uh, these things can't be happening because of all the racial tension there. So I guess your thoughts on how it all went down at Missouri and the actions of the football team. This is pretty incredible, and I commend the football players wholeheartedly for taking a stand and showing that their immense power uh, can be used responsibly and for good and for change. And obviously this movement went beyond football. You mentioned the grad student, uh, Jonathan Butler, who was on a seven-day hunger strike, and the university president, uh, Peyton Head, who... uh, he and the rest of the student association released a statement uh, earlier on Monday, I believe, and he was even interviewed on Sports Center as well. So that's the student president, the student body president, Peyton Head. So, and if you read the articles about the incidents, and it kind of made your stomach churn. But going back to just the football team and the players uh, showing that their inaction could cause a school to take a financial hit and have to weigh. Uh, if the president has to weigh, is my being in this spot worth the school losing on football and its financial and just general benefits? And uh, yeah, I mean, they, they, they basically just escalated the situation so much because there was the hunger strike, there were protests, but that's not national news. But when you say a whole football team, that's the top. Story on Sports Center. We're talking about a million dollars that it could cost the university. The pressure just gets ratcheted up so much. Yeah, and there are people who I saw criticizing the players for, you know, the university gives you a free ride and the scholarship to come here and play football. You know, you're beholden to them to fulfill that responsibility. But at the same time, these unpaid players, these amateurs, bring in so much money and value for the university, for the NCAA, for their coaches, for administrators. And it it goes back to kind of a a pay-for-play discussion. But in the long run, while I do think there is some responsibility to fulfill the obligations of your scholarship, it's not like the university is this um, benevolent benefactor and – you play for them in a vacuum, there were a wave of disgusting racist incidents on campus, and these players who hold this power 
took a stand, and I think they should be commended for yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, I think you look at it as even though the NCAA refuses to refer to them as employees, it that's kind of the situation I look at it as, where, look, if I'm getting paid by someone, I have, you know, some obligation to perform my duties, but, you know, in in the way that, you know, people form unions and things of that nature, if I feel like, you know, I'm not being protected, I don't feel safe, you're not living up to your end of the bargain, then I'm not going to live up to mine. Um, so I, what really stood out to me is that, you know, over the last couple of years, there have been a lot of uh, political statements and social statements by athletes, which we haven't seen in a long time. You know, I remember during the civil, I mean, I wasn't alive, but, you know, during the civil rights movement, there was Tommy Smith and John Carlos at the 1968 Olympics lifting their fists. Um, they drew a lot of criticism, including from Brent Musburger. Uh, then there was Muhammad Ali, who had a lot of political statements, um, and so on and so forth. And then the last couple of years, you know, we've seen NBA players in particular with Trayvon Martin, with Ferguson. Uh, we've also seen, I'm trying to think of another big incident that, uh, that happened where people spoke out. But in general, that, that athletes are feeling comfortable speaking out on issues and well, there's the NFL players who have been trying to wear things in their eye black and, oh, right. uh, to raise awareness for oh, cancer and, and domestic and violence. And the other one I was going to raise is the LA Clippers with Donald Sterling right. uh, wearing their uh, warm-ups inside out. So I, th- I think it's great as long as it's done responsibly. I think you definitely don't want athletes trying to take everything into their own, own hands. And I think it's dangerous to try and hijack an entire athletic department, um, especially if it's not done for the right reasons. Um, my initial thought when I saw this was kind of what people I see on Twitter saying, which is, you know, okay, you had uh, two incidents where people were called the N-word. You had a swastika drawn with feces, which is a story for another day, I believe. Uh, but you have these incidents, and I'm not sure, you know, what that reflects in the presidency. I, you certainly don't expect them to stop it. But when you read more and more stories about people around the University of Missouri, there was a, a general feeling among students and people around the university that Tim Wolf was just not doing anything about these incidents. And like I said, especially at the University of Missouri, uh, with everything that went on in Ferguson, to not have action, to not crack, crack down, not say there's zero tolerance, we're going to find those accountable, do everything you can to, to, to basically act like, oh, well, you know, these are unfortunate incidents. Uh, you're going to have a lot of people come out against you and you're going to have uh, African-American students say, I don't feel safe on this campus and I don't think uh, the presidency is doing enough to make me feel safe. So I think Tim Wolf definitely made his own bed and I don't have a problem with uh, the student athletes um, taking it upon themselves and, and showing their power um, to get this done. Yeah, and it comes down to a culture change and just ousting Tim Wolf and bringing in a new regime that's committed to change uh, and movement going forward and hoping that this new person, their, his or her attitude trickles down uh, towards uh, university employees and eventually the students. Yeah, and I just think the, the thing that I've noticed with university presidents is there are some university presidents that want to set up in their ivory tower and just talk to all the power brokers, the boosters, and stuff like that. And then there are the presidents that get out and let's meet with the students. You know, when something bad happens, let's get together a bunch of student groups. Let's meet with 
uh, African-American groups that, that feel bad and, hey, what can we do to make you feel better and, and fix this problem? And when you don't reach out to the students right away when something bad like this happens, then something like this gonna, is going to happen. So I hope this is a message not only for Missouri, but also for universities across the country that whether it's a racial situation, a sexual abuse situation, or anything, that you need to get out and hear from the students and try and figure out a problem and a way to make them feel safe. Otherwise, you're going to be next. Yeah, and one last thought about how refreshing it is to see uh, young people, college students, which is what they are, uh, who recognize they have this power and use it for good. I uh, just wanted like, to reiterate that. Even if it, the whole football thing aside, it's young people in Missouri, which has been the nexus of all this racial tension over the last uh, year and a half, two years, um, using their standing to do good. I think uh, it's a great yeah. sign. And so many university presidents forget that these are their clients. These are their paying customers. Uh, they look at them as like, oh, these are kids, you know, whatever. Well, you know, I'm going to sit up here and work with all the boosters and uh, the the uh, board of trustees and all that stuff. I don't need to meet with students. Well, these are the people with the power. These are the people, these are your constituents. And it's, you know, politics 101 that uh, you should be listening to and working on problems with your constituents that too many university presidents don't do. So we want to talk about, even though the, the key games didn't live up to the hype, um, Clemson-Florida State was, was close. Wasn't the best played game I've ever seen. No. And then TCU-Oklahoma State and LSU-Alabama, those were, were never really contests. Uh, but Ole Miss-Arkansas. Game of the weekend. <laughs> Who knew? Which, which I did not flip over because I was watching uh, Clemson-Florida State and TCU-Oklahoma State. I didn't flip over until, you know, 30 and seconds. Everyone on Twitter game. is shouting, you flip <laughs> yeah. over. Yeah, so I flip over, and Hugh Freeze makes the curious decision to go for it on fourth down, which gives Arkansas a chance to win the game uh, by throwing a, a ball down the field. That field goal is blocked, and then we go into overtime, and then that's when the real chaos begins. All hell broke loose. I mean, that, you know, if it weren't for this season where we've had so many finishes, I would say that's the craziest finish I've seen in years. I mean, that might be the third craziest finish <laughs> of the season. And yeah. it, you have, you, I mean, I've watched the play a million times since it happened. He was, he was down and that was just a bad tackle on that fourth and 25. And then he laterals the ball back. But that's having know, any idea who he doesn't know to. where it's going mm-hmm. to. And it just takes the most fortuitous bounce Right into an Arkansas player's bread basket with a clear lane. Up well, it was on the side. ground, right. but Ole Miss didn't even try and pick it up. No. Then uh, Alex Collins picks it up. Half the guys aren't even chasing him because they're like, wait, what, wasn't he down over here? And he's got a clear lane <laughs> on the far sideline to the first to the first down. Yeah. Brett Bielema, I want to know like what deal he has with the devil. That They throw a 15-yard pass when it's fourth and 25. So you're like, okay, that is no chance. Then he throws it 10 yards backward, almost to the original line of scrimmage. Then it, Alex, almost, it almost looked like a bouquet at a wedding. The way he threw it <laughs> yeah. back. So Alex Collins picks it up. Half the guys aren't even chasing him. He gets the first down. Then Old Miss players are looking around like, was he down? Was he not down? Then he fumbled the ball at the end, but he got back on it. And then the whole fact of they score, then go for two. Then there's a face mask on Brandon uh, Allen when the game would have been over. And as someone pointed out, if Brandon Allen had thrown the ball up and not completed it, there wouldn't have been a face mask. 
but he takes the sack, which he never should have done, which results in the face mask, and then they run another two-point conversion play and get the touchdown. I mean, Brett Bielema, as he said afterward, just wants to hop on his wife. Um, And that, I mean, I just can't believe the luck involved. One, okay, so I'll say Hugh Freeze deserves all the criticism for, one, the fourth down play that almost blew them the game. Two, not having his players play till the whistle. Um, you know, the face mask, I, I, I guess that happens when you're trying to make a sack. Right. Um, but just up and on him. Yeah, all the, all the things that had to go wrong for Ole Miss, that is a brutal loss. And I, I want to point out another thing, that Carter Blackburn, I think it was Aaron Taylor on the call, didn't seem to realize the play was still alive until halfway through it. And then once they realized it, they were like, oh, wait, I think, and he's got a first down. It was very <laughs> Joe Buck-esque to me <laughs> yeah. in that it was almost like purposely calm. And I was on my couch like, get excited. What are you doing? <laughs> yeah. And um, Richard Deitch, I saw uh, Sports Illustrated's media writer tweeted after that a lot of people were sharing that same sentiment that yeah. they should have gotten excited. It was very much like uh, the David Tyree catch in the Super Bowl. And it is caught by Tyree <laughs> yeah. or the David Freeze home run. We will see you tomorrow night. Yeah. It's like, get excited. Yeah. We know you're supposed to be objective, but I mean, it's, it was pretty apparent what was happening after Alice Collins picked it up and, you know, the first 10 yards he ran. Yeah. You're I, allowed to get pumped I up. I think the first thing is, you know, I'm sure the coaches after this game are saying play until the whistle. And the same goes for the announcers. Announce until the whistle. And then once you did realize the play was still going, then at least get fired up there. I think, you know, I think Carter Blackburn was kind of confused about, you know, I thought he thought it would be awkward to go from complete convert, confusion to just screaming. So then he kind of did it calm. But the whole thing was off. It was a mess. And for a game, you know, they got that game because uh, Uncle Vern and Gary, and Gary Danielson were on Alabama Old Miss duty. So they got the 330 game, which they otherwise would not have gotten. And they blew that opportunity by, you know, most people didn't watch any of that game until the last 30 seconds in overtime. And if that's all you saw, then you saw Carter Backburn and Aaron Taylor inexplicably, you know, walking you through a fourth and 25. So hopefully they'll get that buttoned up for the next next game. And, and for all the times you've seen this season, how, you know, Michigan, Michigan State, Florida State, Georgia Tech, um, you know, all these games that have happened this year, Duke-Miami, Yeah, how are you not ready for anything can happen in this situation? Yeah, uh, it's pretty incredible, and I feel like something's going to top it. We still have three more weeks to go. Yeah, uh, You feel like every next week is going to be the week where nothing insane happens, yeah. and still we're on this crazy hot streak where we're getting one or, t- or two uh, ridiculous endings every week. But going back to the broadcasting point, I mean – you look at Ole Miss, Arkansas, and Alabama, LSU, and it's not like you're signing up to have uh, Uncle Vern and Gary Danielson call Ole Miss, Arkansas. So it was what it was. The matinee wound up being the better game. But, uh, yeah, you got to play and call until double zeros. Yeah, I guess that game would have been on – probably would have been on ESPN um, because CBS gets the first tier rights, and then if it would have been on CBS Sports Network – uh, then that game probably would have been on ESPN. Um, but yeah, as you said, unbelievable year of crazy finishes. And I expect nothing less 
then the national title to be decided by a team having the ball on their own one-yard line with one second left and running the annexation of Puerto Rico (laughs) 99 yards to win the game uh, at the buzzer. So we want to talk about uh, one of the duds from this weekend, which was Alabama-LSU, and there was so much hype for this game. And there was so much hype for the game of the century a couple years ago, which wasn't very exciting to watch, but was at least close. The fact that LSU laid a complete egg has got to be so frustrating for LSU fans. This is now five straight losses to Alabama where they continually get just beaten down in Tuscaloosa and then lose a close one in Baton Rouge. How are you feeling if you're an LSU fan right now? Not great. Here are a few things I didn't expect. I know Alabama's front seven is mammoth, probably the best in the country, but Leonard Fournette had 31 yards on 19 yeah. carries, and I did not, maybe 75, 80 yards, but I did not expect that sort of futility, and I didn't expect the LSU defense to let Derrick Henry just yeah. go ham on them. 210 yards, uh, three touchdowns on 38 carries. Yeah. So, you know, you expected Alabama, and you wrote this in your column, to keep LSU honest and uh, make Brandon Harris throw the ball, and he couldn't. Six for 19, 128 yards. He had that one uh, nice touchdown pass to Travon Durrell, and that was it. And uh, they couldn't get it done on the ground, and they were one-dimensional, and uh, Jay Coker managed the game well, and, I mean, that was that's the story. Yeah. But I just didn't expect LSU to lay down as much as they did. I expected it to be a contest, and... For Alabama still to keep Fournette in check and maybe for LSU to do a little more to stop Derrick Henry, but it was a total white. Yeah, it was it was just kind of a downward spiral for LSU where, you know, Alabama is just keen on the run, saying, Okay, you're not gonna be able to run through our front seven when we have the safeties up. Brandon Harris, you beat us. Okay, you had that one forty yard touchdown pass, let's see if you can do it again. He couldn't do it. Then as the second half goes on, you know, LSU is having three and outs, not able to hold the ball long. The defense is on the field way too much. They're getting worn down, and it just, they never had a chance. And it's sad that you see these games. It reminded me of the BCS National Championship game in 2012, where it was over before it even started, because the game plan just had no chance of beating a Nick Saban defense that said, you know, you're, you're completely one-dimensional, and you're going to try and, you know, run the ball, you know, 35 times and pass it 15 times. And that might work against Auburn, but that's not going to work against us. So I think it's really frustrating to be defeated before you even walk on the, the field because the game plan is so lackluster. And like I said, until that changes, uh, you know, LSU is going to keep losing Alabama, keep falling short in the SEC West, and not go back to where they were in Nick Saban's first year, which was winning the national title. So it's unfortunate, um, and for LSU's sake, I, I would like, you know, it would be one thing if LSU had lost by three or seven. You say, hey, there's a game in Tuscaloosa. You know, maybe they've still got a shot if Alabama, you know, stumbles to still win the national title. When you lose like that, it was only, you know, at the end it was only a 14-point game. They got they got pummeled. They have not no, that close. Yeah, they have no right to be in the college football playoff, even if they went out. Yeah, and if I'm an LSU fan, going back to your first question, I mean, that's it. They're eliminated from the playoff. They have Arkansas at home, uh, Ole Miss in Oxford, and then A&M at home. Uh, even if they went out, obviously, if Alabama wins out, uh, Alabama's in the conference championship game, and they have 
Mississippi State on the road next week, which is probably their toughest game because then they get Charleston Southern at home and then the Iron Bowl in Auburn. So, yeah, LSU's playoff hopes are pretty much dashed in this yeah. game. Maybe they get a New Year's Six bid if they win out. Um, yeah, and I, do, and I do never want to say never because once you rule someone out, like the, I, year, the year that LSU won the national title where they lost to Arkansas and then somehow got in again. So I won't, I won't rule it completely out. I would say but almost. Uh, I, I mean, barring uh, something crazy happening, yeah. you know, Mississippi State might give Alabama a, a good game this weekend, but and then the Iron Bowl, I guess, is always up for grabs. Yeah. But I, I'm not giving Auburn too much of a chance in that game, and LSU's got a, a tough three games coming up, so I just don't see it. Yeah. All right, we want to move on to another thing that we didn't expect is the Heisman race being completely thrown up in the air. I feel like everyone had Leonard Fournette and Trevon Boykin as 1-1A in one in the Heisman race. Fournette runs for 31 yards on 19 carries. You know, whether or not it's his fault, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't look good to Heisman voters. And then Trevon Boykin, four interceptions and a loss to Oklahoma State. Now, you know, you look at the names, people, I think they're still in the discussion, but obviously huge hits for them. But now you have to enter all these other names. Derrick Henry after his massive game. Deshaun Watson, uh, quarterback of the number one team in the country. Corey Coleman from Baylor. Baker Mayfield from Oklahoma. Ezekiel Elliott from Ohio State. Christian McCaffrey from Stanford. Who would you say – I don't want to do power rankings of who you'd say is number one right now. Who do you think will win the Heisman Trophy? That's a tough question. I still think – Fournette is going to win, and obviously this game looks really bad on his resume, but it doesn't immediately discount everything else he did up to this point, and he still is the leading rusher in the country and finds the end zone pretty often. He's got games against Ole Miss and Arkansas, which are the 27th and 28th ranked rushing defenses, and then A&M, which is near the bottom of the FBS. So if he puts together... If he can rush for 150 yards, 200 yards in these next three games coming up and LSU gets into a New Year's Six Bowl or, or a good bowl, which shouldn't have as much to do with it as it, as it does. You know, it's not really like a, a Pro League's MVP award, but I still think it's his to lose with the footnote that obviously it's much tighter. I think Derrick Henry, despite inconsistent performances early in the season – is poised to do huge things in these final three games and then a potential um, SEC championship game, although I don't think that will matter for his Heisman. Uh, yeah, that would, that would still be included. Okay, so uh, I think it's Fournette's to lose still, and Henry, you know, Saturday night was kind of like a, not a passing of the baton, but the race got much closer. Yeah, and the reason I asked who I think will win as opposed to who's number one right now is that you probably still have Fournette number one right now, but I think Derek Henn will, will win it because I think Heisman voters are so inclined to vote for someone that's in the college football playoff because it's the same reason teams, you know, if, if you're not like a top 10 team, you basically have no chance, is they're going to say, we want the best player of a team playing for a national title. Uh, I'm not saying that'll always be the case, but you look at Derrick Henry, he absolutely destroyed LSU, 210 yards on the ground, three touchdowns. His last three games, he's completely gone off. And I expect him to have, you know, three more monster games going into the SC title game. 
then they'll probably play Florida there. Um, I think he'll have, you know, he's, he's facing some tough defenses, but I expect if he continues this pace of, you know, maybe 150 yards and two touchdowns, I think those are going to be huge numbers at the end of the year. Alabama will be in the college football playoff, and I think, you know, he'll have an extra game on Leonard Fournette. You will have seen him an extra game in the SEC championship game, and you will have said, hey, let's go back and do that head-to-head, 210 yards versus 31 yards. I just think um, Derrick Henry, it's it's his to lose right now unless he were to were to stumble or Alabama were to stumble. Um, but basically, if they get by Mississippi State, I'm extremely confident uh, they will make it to the college football playoff. So that that's the guy I'm sticking with right now. Yeah, it looks like a veritable toss-up. This is kind of apropos of nothing, but looking through Derrick Henry's game-by-game numbers, his worst performance this season, the line is 13 rushes, 52 yards, uh, four yards per carry was against Louisiana Monroe. Yeah. So that's a fun trivia question just to have if you're, you know, like a weirdo and a few years down the road want to prove to your friends you're a weirdo by now. Yeah, exactly. You know, Nick Saban is the kind of guy that once they get up by like 30 points on a team they're pummeling, he just pulls everyone out and runs it straight into the line, uh, whereas most coaches would run it up. The The yards per carry was still kind of mesmerizing to me, the only four yards per carry. Yeah, it still wasn't that good, but I guess... Like, I look at, there are plenty of coaches out there who would have said, let's get him in there and get him 200 yards sure. and then pull him out. Sure. So, uh, Nick Saban's not that kind of coach. Uh, then, lastly, you know, the discussion about the college football playoff uh, also been thrown up in the air um, with LSU probably out, TCU out, and now, you know, the five teams in the driver's seat are Clemson, Ohio State, Alabama, and the winner of the Baylor-Oklahoma State game. So I'd like to hear who you think has the hardest road left. So let's go through real quick. Clemson is at Syracuse versus Wake Forest, out at South Carolina in the AC title game versus probably North Carolina. Let's eliminate eliminate Clemson (laughs) right now. South Carolina might play them tough, but I'm not too worried about them. Uh, Ohio State, this is pretty tough. They've had an easy road up to this point, but now it gets tough. Michigan State at home at Michigan, and then if they win those games, the Big Ten title game versus Iowa. Let's stick a pin in the last game. <laughs> yeah, back stick a pin in that one. Uh, then we have Alabama at Mississippi State. That's a really tough game. Versus Charleston Southern, the SEC, bye week before the rivalry game. At Auburn in the SEC title game against Florida. Uh, that's pretty tough. Baylor versus Oklahoma with game day this week. At Oklahoma State. At TCU, and then Oklahoma State ver- at Iowa State versus Baylor versus Oklahoma. So Baylor to me looks clearly like the hardest. Yeah, because there's no easy games there. No. Versus Oklahoma, who's hot right now, at Oklahoma State that just crushed TCU at home and crushed Baylor two years ago when they played there, and then TCU, you know they they just lost, but it's in Fort Worth. You know they'll be fired up. After the one true champion. Right, and if TCU doesn't lose again before that game, and if Baylor falls, so Oklahoma or Oklahoma State, you know, they might be playing for whatever it's worth. Um, New Year's Six Bowl. Yeah, so, yeah, Baylor, I mean, this is part of the Big 12 uh, backloading their contenders' schedules, which has worked out swimmingly. Like, it's going to be a crazy month in that conference. So I think Baylor's is the hardest, and I think Ohio State is a close second. Illinois should be fine. But Michigan State at home and then 
in Ann Arbor for Meyer Harbaugh one. Those, yeah. I mean, I know Ohio State is probably the better team than both of those teams. Yeah. But you just can't discount anything from happening in those matchups. And then even a potential Big Ten title game against Iowa, I wouldn't sleep on. I mean, yeah. we saw what Ohio State did to Wisconsin last year, but I still wouldn't sleep on that. And uh, anything anything can go in the big house. And Michigan State, despite the result against Nebraska, still has a lot to play for. Yeah. Um, and we'll I, give them I would say game. Clemson obviously has the easiest schedule. Then I'd say Alabama, even though at Mississippi State is very tough this weekend. Um, then I would say Oklahoma State. I would say Baylor and Oklahoma are very tough, but they, they get them both at home, and we just saw what they do at home. So I really like their chances to make the college. And they have Iowa State. And they have Iowa State. So that's like you know a bye week, basically. Although I know Oklahoma State fans are saying, oh, we lost them with Brandon Whedon. We're not taking them for granted. Okay. Uh, then I would say... Yeah, I think Baylor has the toughest road. And Baylor is the only one with no gimmies on there. Yeah, no gimmies on there, and you got their backup quarterback. And sure. while they looked very good against Kansas State, they only beat Kansas State by seven. So I'd be a little worried when you have three uh, really tough teams coming uh, to play you, and you have to play two of them on the road. Ohio State, I think, is really interesting because uh, that, you know they get JT Barrett back, and I'm sorry, I left I left one game off here. Ohio State also plays Illinois, but that is yeah. essentially a bye week. But Michigan State, that'll be tough. Mark Antonio will be perturbed about getting hosed uh, in his mind. Michigan, you know Harbaugh is going to be fired up, and you know Michigan is going to want that game especially bad because they blew the Michigan State game. Uh, so, And then to go through that gauntlet, and then, you know, I normally just – you know, neutral field, Iowa, Ohio State, I, I pick Ohio State. But after beating Michigan State and Michigan, if they do, then that's a that's a really tough three-peat right there to go through all those teams. And one more thing on the line for Michigan, Ohio State, is that if Michigan and Ohio State went out until that game, the game in Ann Arbor will be for the Big East, Big Ten East title which would put Michigan in the Big Ten title game. So the stakes of uh, Meyer Harbaugh won, college, ruining Ohio State season, getting the Big Ten title berth, I mean, that will just be the, the tension, uh, the rivalry, uh, the atmosphere that has been missing. I went to the game last year. That was like Ohio State felt like they were playing Purdue. This year will be back to just height of the rivalry, Bo Woody, uh, stakes we're talking about. So that would be incredible, and I think both Ohio State and Michigan fans are hoping that's what's on the line uh, Thanksgiving weekend. Yeah, and it's going to be a fun game, too, just from a talent standpoint. You have two excellent defenses. Uh, JT Barrett, if he's helming that offense, uh, could obviously be his dynamic self, and then uh, Jake Rudock has really come into his own over the course of this season. Um, two totally different offenses, but It'll just be a fun game, but like you said, I mean, it's such an atmospheric thing at this point where uh, anything really can happen. Yeah. All right. Well, that's it for this week. We'll talk to you uh, next Monday.